Good evening. Was the Belarus incident a government hijacking? Who owns terrorism? President Biden is going to meet with the family of George Floyd on the first anniversary of his killing, even as his George Floyd police bill stalls in the United States Senate. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, May 24th, 2021. The European Union imposed sanctions today against Belarus, banning the former Soviet Republic, now a close ally of Russia, from using the airspace and airports of the 27-nation bloc. The sanctions come amid fury over the forced diversion of a passenger jet to arrest an opposition journalist. The EU called it a brazen hijacking. The Lithuania-bound Ryanair passenger plane carrying Roman Protsevich was forced to land in Belarus following an alleged bomb threat on Sunday. It was just six miles from the Lithuanian border when ordered to return. The crew was falsely told there was a bomb aboard. No bomb was found on the plane. The flight with about 170 passengers on board was escorted to Minsk airport by a Belarusian fighter jet. The 26-year-old Protasevich and his Russian girlfriend were taken off the plane shortly after it landed and authorities haven't said where they're being held. It's possible he could receive a sentence in prison of up to 12 years. Reportedly, Belarus intelligence agents have had Protasevich on terrorism watch list since last year. Meanwhile, Belarus and Lithuania are pointing fingers at each other over the incident. A Minsk court opened a criminal case into false reporting, and Lithuania opened a criminal case into the hijacking of the airplane. NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg tweeted the alliance is closely monitoring the situation. The International Civil Aviation Organization stated the incident could violate the Chicago Convention. Meanwhile, Press Secretary Jen Psaki says the White House condemns the arrest of Protasevich. We certainly, since you gave me the opportunity to do this, condemn Lukashenko's regime's ongoing harassment and arbitrary detention of journalists simply for doing their job. This was a shocking act, diverting a flight between two EU member states for the apparent purpose of arresting a journalist. Uh, it constitutes a brazen affront to international peace and security by the regime. We demand an immediate, international, transparent, and credible investigation of this incident. We are in touch with a range of partners bilaterally and through multilateral channels from NATO, the OSCE, UN, EU, and others. And we have nothing to read out at this point, but we will continue to coordinate closely with them. And that is Jen Psaki. Alexander Lubashenko is president of Belarus. Some say a dictator. His regime has been facing numerous major protests in Minsk and throughout the country. Psaki, curiously, refused to term the incident a hijacking. At this point, we're not legally ready to change any of the existing language regarding the terms hijacking and sanctions. Obviously, there are processes to consider that. In 2013, a plane belonging to the Bolivian government was denied the right to fly over France, Italy and Spain after the Obama administration apparently told the nations that whistleblower Edward Snowden was aboard. What happened when the plane eventually landed in Austria is still a mystery, but Snowden was not aboard. He currently lives in exile in Russia. Events in Belarus have raised issues over what is the term terrorism? What does it mean? What is a hijacking? The Polish prime minister, for example, Sunday said hijacking of a civilian plane is an unprecedented act of state terrorism. It cannot go unpunished. Professor Emeritus at the Department of Political Science at California State University, Chico, is Bo Grosskup. He's the author of Strategic Terror, the Politics and Ethics of Aerial Bombardment. He said 
What happened in Belarus and what happened last week in Gaza reminds him of the vacuous old chestnut. One person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. Groskop says the United States leads the world as arbiter of who is and isn't a terrorist, despite heinous acts by some of America's own friends. Hypocritical, of course, but the larger issue is that it's just another instance of the person with power, or the nation with power, in this case the United States and its allies, owning the subject of terrorism. They have the ability to tell the world who the terrorists are and who the freedom fighters are and have it stick, both in terms of policy and law and practice and public relations. And uh, it's just something that the reality of the world of terrorism, to the victor go the spoils, well, that really means the powerful, to the powerful go the spoils. And in this case, the notion of one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter is a vacuous statement because it's all about who has the power to define and tell us who the terrorists are and who the freedom fighters are and make that uh, meaningful. Is there any incident or time when this... Uh U.S. ownership over the term uh, hijacking and the term uh, terrorism began. The world has a word has a longer history than that. Oh yeah, we're talking about going back to the most scholars would put it back to the 11th century with the Society of the Assassins. So um, you know, it's not something new by any means in the contemporary world of terrorism. It's just that. Uh, Political leaders around the world understand the politics of terrorism, understand that if you can paint your enemy with the terrorist label, given the fact that most people agree that it's the most dastardly deed one can do, uh, principally because the underlying <clears throat> assumption that most people do agree about the definition is that, you know, it's a, it's a victimization of civilians. That's a pretty dastardly deed. When did the U.S. first start using the term in a weapon? In the 70s, for example, the anti-Castro Cubans were wrecking havoc in the United States against any civilian that showed any kind of sympathy or support for the Castro government to the point where Jimmy Carter labeled them the greatest terrorist threat to the United States at the time. But, of course, they were on the right side of the political spectrum, so not many people paid much attention to them in terms of classifying them as terrorists, although the official U.S. government did. The U.S. and its European allies are just as guilty of these kind of acts. The first official skyjacking or hijacking became known as skyjacking of a civilian airliner was done by the Israelis in the 50s. And nobody in the West made a big deal about that because, again, it wasn't even labeled terrorism because it it was uh, under the definition of the freedom fighter label done on behalf of freedom fighters. And then, of course, in 2013, the president of Bolivia plane was hijacked and again wasn't labeled terrorism because it was an attempt to uh, get a guy who was going to be a political prisoner in the United States. Terrorism and who is a terrorist is just an act of loyalty to your government. Absolutely. But even though the United States, as all nations do, the United States has several definitions of terrorism, and they're pretty consistent, a political act of violence or threat of violence to change the policy of a government. But what has happened, of course, is because it's such a politicized environment, the application of one's own definition is very inconsistent, it's called the consistency of inconsistency. It is a rally around the flag. I mean, George Bush put it best after 9-11, you're either with the terrorists or you're with us.
Bo Grosskup is author of Strategic Terror, The Politics and Ethics of Aerial Bombardment. In related news, the White House announced today that Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is headed to the Middle East. Jen Psaki says he'll focus primarily on ensuring that a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas holds. Yes, it is holding. We're continuing to watch it, but there's a recognition. We need to continue to discuss and have conversations with our key partners in the region who played an instrumental role in getting to the point we reached last Thursday, and also to discuss the path forward on rebuilding Gaza. And as you noted, we know that won't be easy, in part because we want to prevent funding from going to Hamas. We obviously don't communicate directly with Hamas, uh, given they're a terrorist organization. A number of countries in the region do. And so the secretary's trip over the next couple of days will be focused on those objectives and i'm certain he'll have the opportunity to provide a readout to the president when he returns and joe biden will on tuesday meet the family of george floyd on the first anniversary of the murder his murder by police in minneapolis but he'll miss his own deadline for police reform to address racial injustice the white house made the announcement today Tomorrow, the president is hosting uh, members of the Floyd family here at the White House to mark the anniversary of his tragic killing. This is going to be a private meeting, and we certainly will also put out a statement from the president marking the anniversary, a day that certainly impacted him personally and impacted millions of Americans. But he wanted this meeting to be private in order to have a real conversation and preserve that with the family. He has a genuine relationship with them and the courage and grace of this family and especially his daughter Gianna has really stuck with the president. As you have seen him talk about Kelly and others many times over the past several months. So he's eager to listen to their perspectives and hear what they have to say during this meeting. The George Floyd Memorial Foundation, a nonprofit launched by Floyd's siblings in September to fight racial inequality, is hosting a series of events in Minneapolis this week. Family members took to the streets on Sunday and marched with hundreds of people. Many carried signs with pictures of Floyd and other black people killed by police. And this Memorial Day marks the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa massacre when 300 black people in Tulsa, Oklahoma, were killed by marauding whites who burned the neighborhood known as the Black Wall Street. Now, with issues of reparations on the agenda, the community is getting together again to map their future in this increasingly diverse city, once known as America's oil capital that held a terrible secret. Hannibal Johnson teaches at Oklahoma State University and the University of Oklahoma. He's the author of Black Wall Street. The black community was invaded by a teeming white mob of thousands, men who had looted pawn shops and hardware stores for, for guns and ammunition, some men, some of whom were deputized by local law enforcement when they invaded the Greenwood community and burned and looted and pillaged and murdered people. At the end of the day, after the violence ceased, roughly a 16-hour period, which the violence was actually quelled by a unit of the Oklahoma National Guard sent in from Oklahoma City, but Property damage ranged in the millions. It would be tens of millions by today's standards. Most historians who've looked at the matter believe that somewhere between 100 and 300 people, mostly black, were killed. Hundreds more were injured. At least 1,250 homes in the black community were destroyed, as were a number of other commercial and community structures. Many black folks were rounded up and put in internment centers temporarily during the violence. It was a really defining and defiling event in the history of Tulsa. 
that still has a legacy in terms of race relations today in the community. There were black men in the community, some of whom were World War One veterans who had weapons, knew how to use them, put up a robust, short-lived resistance. They were outgunned, overmatched, overwhelmingly outnumbered ultimately is a positive story. It's really about the human spirit because the Greenwood community, that notable business community in Greenwood, rebuilt even as the ashes of the massacre still smoldered. The community was rebuilt, hosted the National Negro Business League, that was Booker T. Washington's Black Chamber of Commerce, in 1925. 1940s, the early to mid-1940s, it was really the peak of the business community in the Greenwood District over 200 black-owned and operated businesses in the community by then. The community uh, is really the story, the community and the people and their spirit, that indomitable spirit that was resilient, that was faith-based, that was persevering, that was forward-looking, that was visionary. That's the real story here. The massacre really is a chapter in a grand narrative. How about reparations? Has Tulsa and the state of Oklahoma and the federal government ever come up with any money to pay people for the damages they uh, happened? Reparations is more than cash payments. The general answer to your question is no, reparations have not occurred. So no cash payments have been made to individuals who were survivors or the, their descendants related to the massacre. Other kinds of reparations, there have been little bitty steps for example, there was a state-created commission back in 1997 that met through 2001, issued a comprehensive report that actually recommended reparations and found facts. And um, the state after that did provide just a little couple million dollars that helped create John O. Franklin Reconciliation Park. There was a lawsuit filed in 2003 deemed barred by the statute of limitations, but it sought cash reparations for named survivors and descendants. There's another lawsuit based on another legal theory that's pending right now, seeking cash reparations for survivors and some living and some living descendants as, as, as well. There's a movement also more generally in the community to create different types of reparations, measures designed to, to stimulate investments in the community, both in terms of education and community spaces. What is today, where do the people, the descendants, the black people of Tulsa, how are they doing? My observations and my experience suggest that the community certainly has rallied together around commemorating the history of the Greenwood District in a holistic way, helping people understand not just the massacre, but what the Greenwood community was and why it's important. There are different schools of thought on particular issues, as you might imagine. Some people are really vocal in working for cash reparations for survivors and descendants. Other people are more interested in investments in sectors of the community, specifically the African-American community, such that we do make amends in that regard over time for the damage wrought by the massacre in 1921. Other folks are interested in stimulating dialogue, discussion, and debate on race and racism more generally. How does this history relate to black community police relations or mass incarceration or educational deficits or health care disparities or any of the other present-day racial challenges that we face? History is not past. History is the present. You're listening to 
Hannibal Johnson, who teaches at Oklahoma State University. He's the author of Black Wall Street. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Mayor Bill de Blasio on Monday, that's today, announced schools will fully reopen this fall with no remote option for the city's one million public school students. It will be a major shift for the more than 60 percent of public school students who have chosen to learn remotely. The lack of remote option will mean those families have little choice but to send their children back to school unless they want to leave the public school system entirely for other options like homeschooling. The mayor said the city will work to make families feel better about sending their children to class. United Federation of Teachers President Michael Mulgrew said in an email today, there is no substitute for in-person instruction. He says New York City educators want their students physically in front of them. We want as many students back in school as safely as possible. We are glad the Department of Education will hold open houses to show parents how safe our schools are. He continues, we will have concerns about the safety of a small number of students with extreme medical challenges. For that small group of students, a remote option may still be necessary. And on the other end of the age spectrum in the world of New York City education, city retirees, many former teachers, alarmed about a plan to change their Medicare program, rallied outside New York City Hall. They claimed secret negotiations by the city could lead to privatization, co-pays, higher deductibles, and less choice, all while they live on a fixed income. Rebecca Miles was there and has more on the story. Attending the rally today were over 60 city retirees, some from United Federation of Teachers, another group from DC 37, all wearing masks, holding up signs that read it, Medicare, no advantage, and do not privatize our health care, in protest over the alleged plan by the City and Municipal Labor Committee to change their Medicare health care to a private-managed Medicare Advantage plan. Retirees learned about the plan just two months ago from CUNY's Professional Staff Congress. The Municipal Labor Committee represents dozens of city unions and negotiates with the city over health care coverage separate from work contracts. In 2018, the committee agreed with the city to cut $1.1 billion from health care spending spread over several years. This year's bill is to cut $600 million. And the plan is to move 250,000 retirees from Medicare to Medicare Advantage. Retirees argue it could lead to higher out-of-pocket costs and pre-approvals for costlier procedures. Neil Frumkin is Vice President with AFSCME DC37 Retirees Association and wonders why the city didn't negotiate its own health care program. For a test, there's going to be co-pays for a blood test, for an EKG, for uh, if you need a, a eye exam, everything's going to be co-pays. They told us, guess what? There's going to be limits. $1,500 per head or per belly button, that's what we call it. Every colored, covered person, $1,500. That's the most you'll have to pay in your co-pays. Well, does that sound like what you're paying today? No. No. So they lie. Okay. And we asked, how are you going to save all this money? How is that going to happen if it's not going to come out of our hides? And they said it's going to be based on the fact the federal government will actually give additional money to this company for better health metrics. They're going to do better by you and the 
government will give them more money. You give them a good rating, they'll get still more money. Well, if you believe that, there's a bridge over here I'd like to sell you. The city of New York says they're not going to spend any money on health care for the next three years. What if we are sick? What if we aren't magically cured of all our diseases? Then the city's going to wind up spending all this money anyway. And they'll come back and come back and come back for more cuts and more cuts and more cuts. We got to draw the line in the sand right now. Thank you. They demand full transparency, a moratorium with member input into final decisions, no to privatization, yes to single payer and Medicare for all. Rebecca Miles, WBAI New York. Thanks, Rebecca. And Governor Andrew Cuomo on Sunday announced the statewide COVID-19 positivity rate dropped to 0.77%, the lowest since August 29th, 2020. Cuomo says while the war against COVID has been won, the disease is under control for now. The number of vaccinations is dropping off dramatically. We're now doing fewer than 100,000 per day. That's a dramatic decline, 55% decline in how many vaccines that we've been doing. So we have to make sure that this complicated message, we're managing COVID, we're doing well, the positivity rate is not misunderstood to say it's over. It's not over. We are managing it by what we are doing. And the tool that manages it is the vaccination. And that is key to keep that vaccination going. But there's no doubt, on the other hand, that we are in a much different place in COVID. We're on the beach getting ready for Memorial Day. Seasons change, right? And the season has changed. The longest night eventually gives way to the dawn. And the coldest winter literally yields to the sun at the end of the day. And COVID has been a long, cold, dark winter. But the season has changed and we're on the right side. We have the beast contained. Governor Cuomo. In related news, a Siena College poll released on Monday found a plurality of voters in New York do not think Governor Andrew Cuomo should resign from office as he faces a barrage of controversies over the last five months. The poll shows 49 percent of voters don't support the governor's resignation. Forty one percent of those surveyed do. Last month, the same poll showed 51 percent don't support Cuomo's resignation, while 37 percent at the time did. Cuomo has been accused of sexual harassment or misconduct by multiple women since the end of last year. His administration is under federal investigation over how it counted and reported the deaths of nursing home residents during the COVID-19 pandemic. And in more COVID-19 news. The Wall Street Journal reports today that in April 2012, six miners in Wuhan fell sick with a mysterious illness after entering a mine to clear back guano. Three of them died. The article in the Wall Street Journal continues that Chinese scientists from the Wuhan Institute of Virology were called in to investigate 
and after taking samples from bats in the mine, identified several new coronaviruses. Now, unanswered questions about the miners' illness. The viruses found at the site and the research done with them have elevated into the mainstream an idea once dismissed as a conspiracy theory that SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, might have leaked from a lab in Wuhan, the city where the first cases were found in December 2019. White House spokesperson Jen Psaki reacted to the article today. President Biden pushing for more access, more information to get to the bottom of exactly what happened. We are. Uh, and we have repeatedly called for the WHO to, to support an expert-driven evaluation of the pandemic's origins that is free from interference or politicization. Now, there were phase one results that came through. During that first phase of the investigation, there was not access to data. There was not information provided. And now we're hopeful that WHO can move into a more transparent, independent phase two investigation. But with 589,920 dead Americans, at what point does President Biden say, we don't want to wait for the WHO? Well, first of all, we need access to the underlying data and information in order to have that investigation. And, and why not? But he talks all the time about how he's known President Xi for a long time. So why can't he just call and, and we need and them. for that information? I think you're misunderstanding how this process actually works. An international investigation led by the World Health Organization is something that we've actually been pressing for for several months in coordination with a range of partners around the world. We need that data. We need that information from the Chinese government. What we can't do and what I would caution anyone doing is leaping ahead of an actual international process. We don't have enough data and information to jump to a conclusion at this point in time. So is there any amount of the casualties from COVID in this country that would make you want to not wait for an international effort and just do it? Well, I I have to say, I think the family members of the loved ones whose lives have been lost and deserve accurate information data, not the jumping to a conclusion without having the information necessary to conclude what the origins are. What we do share, everyone in this country, is a desire to know how this started, where it started, and prevent it from ever happening again. That's something we all share. Go ahead. White House spokesperson Jen Psaki. And that's some of the news for Monday, May 24th, 2012. The news is produced Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. Hello, WBAI listeners and supporters. If you appreciate interacting with members of the WBAI Local Station Board, then tune in Friday, May 28th from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. for the fourth report of 2021 from the WBAI Local Station Board. This time you'll hear from various members of the Local Station Board. They'll talk about their responsibilities, recent developments throughout the network, and ask you for your ideas on how to build a stronger WBAI.